This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Preparations are underway for the inauguration of Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., or Bong Bong, as he's known. Marcos won the election in a landslide victory. The Philippines Congress affirmed the election results just last week. Marcos is to take office on June 30th. BBM, Bong Bong Marcos, is what a crowd chanted at a victory party this weekend here on Oahu. Blaisdell Park drew more than 100 pro-Marcos supporters, many who came from Ilocos Norte, where the Marcos family hails and which is still fiercely loyal to the deposed dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and who support the transfer of power to his son. Ferdinand Marcos is all set to sit to take the presidential position as the 17th president of the Republic of the Philippines together with his running mate, the 15th Vice President of the Republic of the Philippines, Sara Duterte Carpio. Now, let us show our utmost love, support, and give wishes of good, good luck to the Tiger of the North, Bong Bong Marcos, and the Eagle of the South, Sara Duterte Carpio, as they unite awakened the nation that has been waiting to stand its ground. Ernie Ibarra is with the Worldwide Alliance of Leaders, a group which organized the Memorial Day weekend rally. He and others say give Marcos Jr. an opportunity to prove himself, although opponents fear the Marcos Duterte ticket will seek to rewrite history and protect the current president from facing allegations of human rights violations in his war on drugs in the Philippine Islands. Here's Ibarra. We are here to celebrate the uh, uh, victorious moment of our leader, the great uh, son of our former president and hero, the late President Federal Marcos. And for uh, almost four decades, they were able to redeem themselves politically in the Philippines, as uh, proven by the uh, overwhelming majority of the Filipino people, almost 32 million votes, first ever in the history of politic politics in the Philippines. So we in Hawaii, 80% Alilujanos, and uh, the elite president is from the Ilocos province. And that's why we are here to celebrate uh, and to uh, give our salute to our new president-elect, Ferdinand Bongbo Marcos Jr., and of course, Sara Duterte Carpio. And so wh when was the last time uh, Bongbong was here? Do you know? 15 or 20 years ago, when he was the uh, uh, governor of Ilocos Norte. I was one of the young leaders of the uh, pro-Marcos uh, youth group, the Kabatang Barangay. And when did you come to Hawaii? I came to Hawaii in 2006 with my family. Our family roots from Ilocos region and from Ilocos Norte. And uh, ever since, uh, I worked with the Marcos family during his term as governor and uh, the sister, Amy Marcos, as the senator. The support that you've got here today, you've got many different groups from the different towns and the different yeah. uh, cities in the Philippines? Yeah, well, we have chosen uh, the, the leaders of different organizations because uh, we cannot get as many people as we can here because the, the park is uh, limited only for a few hundreds of people uh, so that we'll begin the permit. Uh, so that's why uh, we have chosen the leaders in the, uh, different towns to be represented here. Because uh, me, at the same time, I'm the ambassador of the Filipino communities to the office of Mayor Rick Bangjari. That's why the mayor is here. And the former governor of uh, Hawaii, uh, George Ariusi, uh, he is uh, very friendly to the Marcos family. Yes, he, he was, was the governor when uh, the, the Marcos family was exiled in Hawaii in 1986. So you've invited the family? Yeah, they've had the family and they will be here today. And so what is the message that you want to get out? Because I know there are folks who did not vote for uh, the Marcos Duterte ticket and they're concerned about the human rights track record. What do you say to them? Oh, history will prove itself. I am, I am a witness because I was a leader since 1980. And uh, there are more human rights violations during the term of Aquinos, the Aquinos. But uh, the, uh, the Western media accelerated uh, overblown the, uh, the uh, human rights issue during the Marcos administration because uh, we were exported uh, economically and uh, social during those times, even if martial law, that was the best time of the 
people from the Filipinos because there was peace and order and progress. Economically, we were exporting rice before, but now we are importing rice in the Philippines. We have all the edifice for health, education, everything during Marcos years, but it was cut off during his last terms. Their calling is only in Manila, but not the whole country. You see now, it's 31, 32 million votes over having support the Filipinos in the Philippines. Reflect it also in Hawaii. We will see a 360-degree uh, turn of the economy of the Philippines. Why do you believe that? Yeah, because uh, Bongbong has prepared for this and the, and the, uh, the whole uh, group now that is with him. And we are a part of it. Even though we are in Hawaii, we are still a part of uh, the team. Do you think people may go back for the inauguration when they go back to the uh, Malacanang Palace? Yeah, of course, we, have, we are organizing the group. But uh, no definite place yet for the inauguration because uh, there are a lot of proposals. That was Ernie Ibarra of the Worldwide Leaders Alliance organizing what they called the BBM Victory Party. The rally ended with the anthem while the Philippines flag flew over the picnic tents. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi stopped by the midday gathering, as we mentioned, as well as Don Arioshi, the son of former Governor George Arioshi, who was in office and who welcomed the exiled president when the Marcos family fled the Philippines. Also on hand, Sherry Manor McNamara, candidate for lieutenant governor. Civil Beats Reality Check today has an intriguing story about our airports. Reporter Blaze Lovell joins us today. Good morning. Hey, morning, Catherine. So this is kind of a, a story about the budget, <laughs> what got left out. Uh, uh, tell us more. Yeah, it's definitely a budget story, and it's quite intriguing. So there's three positions that are proposed to be cut out of the Department of Transportation's airports division. So they oversee things like the Daniel K. Inouye Airport on Oahu, uh, Kahului on Maui, and the, all the state-run airports. And those three positions, they're pretty high level, they're pretty important, and the department feels like if they're cut, it could basically cripple the airports program. So top among the positions, it's called the airports administrator. And you could think of it kind of like the CEO of all the airports in the islands. You know, they manage the day-to-day -day operations. They oversee the staff. They make sure everything's running how it's supposed to be running. Then there's the administrative services officer. And they deal with airport finances. So they're kind of like if this was a company, they'd be the CFO or the chief finance officer. They oversee a lot of the development projects going on at the airports. And they also take lead on um, interfacing with the legislature. The third position is called the Visitor Information Program Officer, and basically they just coordinate all the security and TSA checkpoints that are around the airports to make sure that passengers are flowing properly through them. And they're also supposed to partner with the Hawaii Tourism Authority to manage tourism in the state. So these are key positions, uh, but according to your story, they haven't been filled permanently for a long time. Yeah, they haven't been filled permanently in years. Now, all of them are filled now, but only on a temporary basis. So, for example, that CEO, quote-unquote, position I mentioned, the airport's administrator, it's filled by a guy named Davies Yogi, who was brought over from the harbors position. Um, but they're all only on a temporary basis, and I believe only through you know the end of the year. And that's kind of why the Senate has been concerned about these positions, because they're high level, but they've been filled by temporary uh, hires for you know quite some time and the most recent person to fill this position was actually uh, a guy named Ford Fuchigami who worked in the governor's office was a former DOT director and worked there temporarily last year before coming over to work in the Senate which proposed the, <laughs> the budget cuts but I talked to Donovan Dela Cruz he's the senator in charge of budgeting 
you know, he said that the concern is that those positions have been vacant, and he'd consider reinstating them, but would talk to the next administration about how to do that. They basically want to see a plan um, laid out for how exactly these positions would be used and uh, what to do going forward. So it is a bit of a head-scratcher. I mean, Ford Fujikami, I mean, he knows DOT, um, but then he went over to the Senate Ways and Means Committee. So I'm just wondering, is does he have some insight as to maybe who's not pulling their weight? I don't know. It is a head-scratcher. He left the department under some mystery, uh, and we weren't able to reach him. Uh, but, you know, it's something that we'll be looking at. Another important thing to point out about these positions is they're all civil service positions. So that means they won't term out along with the governor later this year. Uh, without them, the responsibility for, you know, doing all the things we described earlier, it's going to fall to the deputy director and the director. And they're both political appointees, right? They Those directors come and go with each administration. But these positions, you know, if they're filled permanently and not temporarily, they hang around between administrations and so um, a lot of the DOT employees who wrote letters to the Senate and to Governor David Ige asking you know that these positions be restored are worried about that longevity and that continuity. Right I mean on one hand you can see how having some institutional memory and having someone who knows the process uh, you know that is in that key in those key positions rather than having to uh, have someone you know that maybe can't hit the ground running. Right, especially when you're trying to address a lot of the long-standing issues that both the Senate, you know, and the public, and the DOT even want to see fixed up. A lot of this got brought up during a budget hearing in January. There's been some issues with security cameras not working for years. One senator questioned why the TSA checkpoint near the United Airlines terminal, you know, the one right in the center, is for some reason always closed. And there's also a lot of, you know, improvements that they made, like that new rental car facility and the new concourse. Those all need to be overseen, and all the new construction projects also need to be, you know, overseen by these positions. Right, and we are at a time when uh, we're seeing more visitors, uh, uh, certainly from the mainland, uh, you know, come into town. So, yeah, you kind of want things to run uh, smoothly at our airports. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. We've been talking to Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell for today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Arn and Ruth Werchick Charitable Fund, believing in the need for trusted information sources and supporting Friends of the Library's Kona and its graduate scholarships at folkhawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Justine Willis-Toms, author of Small Pleasures. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding grace in a chaotic world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. gas prices is prompting many to pause and consider other alternatives. The sticker shock comes at a time when electric vehicles are on the cusp of becoming more available. So what's in the works to increase the speed of electrifying our transportation system? We talked to State Senator Chris Lee, head of the Transportation Committee, about the bills poised for the governor's signature. You know, Hawaii has seen EV adoption explode. And while we may see a handful more EVs in our neighborhood streets, what it really comes down to is we are leading the nation just behind California in rates of adoption. And that's because we have significantly lower cost driving EVs compared to regular gas cars, especially now when fuel prices are exploding because of Ukraine and all kinds of other stuff. 
So in Hawaii, our challenge has been how do we expand public EV charging infrastructure? Because while we have more EVs than almost any other state per capita, we have among the lowest numbers of chargers per capita. So that's something that we really have to close the gap on. So there are several bills that we passed this year specifically to try and expand charging capacity. Senate Bill 3311, which not only establishes like long-term goals for making sure everybody has access to EV charging, but ensuring that the Department of Transportation takes the lead and plans and implements EV chargers at a rate to exceed the rate of adoption for electric vehicles as it unfolds in the years to come. I mean, I think what people are looking for is ultimately easy charging either at home or at work. And for tourists, for example, you have Hertz coming in, which is going to be bringing in hundreds of electric vehicles for tourists to use. And we know the other rental car companies are doing the same. How do we ensure that those public chargers are accessible all around the islands and places where people are going to go? So that's something that's definitely on the docket. And there is a bill, another bill we passed, SB 2720, which expands the existing EV charger rebate program, which currently provides funding for chargers that are accessible to the public in places like shopping malls or in townhomes and, and things like that. So we're really trying to up the number of options people have to finance and install these things. And that's on top of the $18 million we just got from the federal government to put in public accessible chargers on all islands. So there's going to be a lot more we're seeing roll out in the coming months and years. And talk about um, what maybe some of the airlines are getting into. So along with changes to electric vehicles, we're also trying to move toward electric transportation inter-island, from, from island to island. That's, of course, our airlines. So SB 3311, which we just passed, and it's sitting on the governor's desk, makes Hawaii the first state to target the electrification and zero emissions for air transportation from island to island. And that's something that's never really been done before. But we have been working with electric aircraft manufacturers who are looking to roll out electric aircraft that can service inter-island routes. And that's something that we expect will roll out very soon in the next few years. And that'll transform the way that we get around because getting off of jet fuel, which was the whole reason why Aloha Airlines went down back in the day because those costs kept going up, means we can reduce the cost of inter-island airfare significantly simply by moving cheaper electricity. So there's a lot of benefit here, and there's a lot of stuff moving. And I know, oh gosh, about a year or so ago, I think Mokulele was, you know, looking at batteries. Right. So, you know, we are, it's interesting, Hawaii's actually in this pivotal spot. Because we're a series of islands, because we have these short-haul flights from island to island, our air carriers are perfectly positioned compared to pretty much anywhere else in the country to be able to implement these short-range electric aircraft that can move people far cheaper and just as quick as anywhere else. So Mokulele, Hawaiian, Southwest, all the places they go and all the airlines that fly inter-island can take advantage and incorporate these kinds of aircraft into their fleet. And we expect that's happening just in the next few years. Okay, but some may be farther along than others. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think um, I was up in Massachusetts and a colleague of mine, a state senator up in Massachusetts, owns kind of an Mokulele equivalent called Cape Air. And he had pledged to make sure his airline was going to be the first to move to all electric uh, aircraft moving from place to place up there. And so I think we have an opportunity because there's competition in the marketplace now. And our airlines want to be the first as well. They want to get out there providing better services in cleaner, cheaper aircraft. So I think we're going to start to see this stuff. Mokulele is ideally suited, Hawaiian and others, to take advantage of this. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, the rent-a-car companies have expressed some interest in uh, energizing their fleet. So, you know, Hertz has already announced that they're bringing electric cars to Hawaii, and that's rolling out in the months to come. So we are looking to figure out how do we put in the electric charging infrastructure and make sure that people can charge wherever they need to go. And that's really exciting because it means Less fossil fuels means lower prices. It means for all the local residents who want to move to cheaper EVs, more chargers that they can access as well. So that's something that is a win-win for everybody here in the state. And what about the notion that there is a different model, that you could change out batteries in cars versus charging up, you know, the battery that your car came with? There have been companies that have proposed simple battery swaps, kind of like dropping in a gas station Instead of having to fill up a tank or wait for a battery to charge, you just replace the battery with one that's already pre-charged. That's something that's been done in other places. In specific models, we haven't seen a lot of actual vehicles hit the market that can do that. And right now, I think the rate of 
reduction in cost for battery production, as well as the continuing expansion of range as batteries get more and more efficient, means that it may or may not make sense in some models. Because right now you can buy an EV that can go you know, 400, 500 miles in some cases reliably on one charge. And if you're at home and you charge once every three or four days overnight, you're never going to hit a point where you're going to run out of juice here in Hawaii. So we'll see if it makes sense or not. But those options are on the table. And, you know, I think we welcome all the technology. And you had mentioned that early on at one time there was a company here that was exploring that? That's right. There was a, there was a company here in Hawaii that was looking at that kind of battery swap model. And there are certainly other companies out there that are looking in other cities and other states around the country to do something similar. So it's still being explored and there's still development going on. The EPA just recently put out a news release urging school districts to apply for money that would help switch out gas or diesel buses you know, to electric vehicles. Well, you know, here in Hawaii, we already have a school bus shortage. And we're one of the only states that doesn't have a dedicated way for kids to get to school. So what it's meant is parents have to spend extra dollars buying cars for kids to get around or take time out of their work. Or kids simply can't stay after school and play sports or do other things because their parents have to come home, have to pick them up at a set time in order to to make um, their schedules work. So having access to more buses or, better yet, more ways for kids to get around and for everybody to get around without having to rely on expensive cars if a family can get away with having one car instead of two or two cars instead of three, is a huge cost savings for local residents. So we're looking at ways to make sure that the counties, for example, in their public transit systems can convert to electric buses faster. They're all on track to do it within the next 20 years. And we're also looking at how do we get people alternative options that are cleaner and cheaper to get around because the cost of transportation just in the last year has gone up almost 23% if you own a car because of fuel price spikes, because of inflation, because of all the things. That is a huge cost of living increase that people just haven't really paid much attention to. So there is another bill, SB 3158, that is sitting on the governor's desk right now that we just passed. And it would provide up to $500 rebates for the purchase of electric bicycles and electric mopeds especially if you're a college student or high school student or if you're just wanting to get around more cheaply without having to spend $10,000 a year owning a car. This is a great option to be able to move much further if you're going to the store, going to work, going wherever. That's the way to do it significantly cheaper than before. And now we can solve the problem that everybody's complaining about, which are noisy mopeds everywhere because the electric mopeds don't make any noise at all. So these are options that are all on the table for everyone. That was Senator Chris Lee, a chair of the Legislative Transportation Committee, talking about the landscape for the electric vehicle market as Hawaii tries to move off gas toward greener options. Well, summer is officially upon us, and before summer tourism hits full tilt, local partners are looking to make the visitor industry more sustainable. HPR reporter Casey Harlow is with us this morning. Hi, Casey. Morning. Yes, and uh, as you may have heard, there's a lot of uh, things going on around the HTA with the state and also communities uh, spreading the word about, you know, managing tourism and educating visitors about being good stewards to, you know, natural resources, but also being a responsible visitor, you know, respecting the culture, respecting the people who live here. And there's a new grassroots initiative that is uh, taking that commitment uh, to local businesses now. Um, you may be familiar with the Pledge to Arcake effort, which is um, basically established in 2020. Uh, students from Oahu and Molokai um, created this pledge. At first, it was for the green fee. Uh, you know, visitors would pay, you know, a little bit extra to maintain for uh, the sustainability and not only that, but preserving of natural resources like for hiking trails or for um, Hanama Bay, for example. Um, and this uh, initiative, this pledge was then kind of championed and is uh, being brought forward by a group of nonprofits being led by uh, Kanu Hawaii. And in February, this group uh, launched a business partnership program. 
And so this pledge is uh, asking local businesses to incorporate uh, this pledge to our keiki uh, into their operations by telling customers what the pledge is one-on-one, educating them about, you know, good stewardship and also, you know, the local culture. Uh, Carissa Cabrera uh, is the partnerships program coordinator, and she de- kind of describes what this pledge is and, you know, what the hope is. The pledge to our keiki needs to be socialized in our communities, okay? People need to learn about it. It needs to be recognizable. It's been around for a while, but we want it to be known. And so we want socialization, we want adoption, and ultimately, I guess a big goal would be when visitors land, they have an opportunity to sign this before they even go about their experience here. But for this program specifically, our mission is to make on-the-ground changes that support responsible visitor behavior. And so uh, Cabrera says most of the businesses uh, she's encountered uh, that are that interact with visitors already have that sustainability mindset in place. And this isn't just uh, for Oahu, it's statewide. Uh, and they're already implementing these sustainable actions. So it's not too much of a stretch then for some of these businesses to just uh, ask their customers to, you know, look at this pledge, tell them what the pledge is all about, and then kind of get a commitment while they're there, you know, either renting a kayak or renting snorkel gear or whatever that business is. So you really want people to make connections but you, so you want buy-in uh but the people the, the folks are in the in the trenches the boots on the ground they've got to know the lingo they've got to know what to say and what the message is yeah exactly and so i spoke with um matt giordano who's uh, the manager at kailua beach adventures about this and he says it's not that much of a stretch because his business his uh, company has been you know, uh, doing beach cleanups they interact with the community on the regular making sure that everything is you know hunky-dory in a way of like they're not stepping on anybody's toes and they're being responsible. Uh, And they also offer discounts and other incentives if people take that pledge or even do a beach cleanup. I also spoke with um, Andy Carey, uh, who is with Kama'aina Kids at Heia State Park, uh, and he's the water program director. And so he's also one of the few businesses that made this partnership, and this is his reaction to hearing about it. We're very conscious of trying to do this in a sustainable way that is not only sustainable for the ecosystem that we're impacting, but also for the local community and the culture that we're impacting You know, when we do these activities. So both of those things, like in order for the activity to be sustainable, it has to be sustainable on all of those fronts. And yeah, so the partnership, again, pretty easy for him to get involved with because they have a sun, a reef safe sunscreens. They tell everybody about, you know, what not to do when interacting with the reef. Stay away from the turtles. Don't touch, you know, the monk seals, things like that. And uh, it's not just visitors. It's also residents, you know, because um, Cabrera says that, you know, you can't expect visitors to make this pledge without, you know, residents living it or having that commitment as well. You can't ask one group to do something that you're not doing. And so um, Carrie also says he this is super critical, super important to, you know, how they do things going forward. I think it's critically important, and that's why I said, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what we need to be, you know, involved with and we need to partner with and we need to get behind because for us to be in this, you know, industry and do what we do, which is providing recreational activities for people to, you know, enjoy specific place or an ecosystem or, you know, whatever the case may be, it really is critically important that it be sustainable in all those ways. So uh, they're still looking for businesses to kind of jump onto this. Uh, Cabrera says they're still working with uh, 15 companies across the state uh, to join this partnership, but more information at kanuhawaii.org. Okay, so these are some of the early adopters. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. You can check out his stories at hawaiipublicradio.org.
This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares an update about a working robot exploring the red planet. We learn more with HPR's Dave Lawrence in this week's Stardigger. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, colorful planet. And as usual, we are turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we are so grateful we've got him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, the planetary menagerie of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn continues to be visible in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase and will remain a benign presence in our night skies till week's end. You have a very exciting story this week, and it involves one of those mysterious places we get a lot of stories from, the Red Planet, and one of our landers there, Chris. Do I have it right? Indeed you do. Another intrepid robot explorer has met its end on the Red Planet. NASA's InSight lander, beset by Martian dust storms, has finally bid farewell to mission control. InSight landed on Mars in November of 2018. Its mission, to study the Martian interior and any signs of geological activity. Several years later, its mission has been a resounding success, with the lander recording over 1,300 Mars quakes, including one magnitude 5 quake earlier this year. So is there any chance the dust will be blown off those solar panels and this thing will work again, or it is toast? Yeah, it's probably toast. With Martian wind comes, well, more Martian dust. Right now, the panels are absolutely caked in dust, and there's very little chance of reviving the lander after December. And why don't you compare and contrast this young man to the Perseverance rover? Well, the key difference between the two missions is the choice of power source. Perseverance carries a small nuclear battery, similar to deep space probes like Voyager and Pioneer. So it doesn't depend on Martian sunlight to power its solar panels. When did that thing get sent up? 2020. So that thing is a little more recent of technology. So we got a few more years. I would suspect a great deal many more years, actually, considering the nuclear power. The only thing that can really hinder perseverance is if it suffers some sort of mechanical breakdown. And it's sad always to see one of our robotic helpers go. It was, and InSight was a good spacecraft. It outlived its expected lifetime by two years. The scientific data it collected will be studied probably for decades to come, and no doubt will reveal incredible things about the Martian interior and what goes bump in the night on the planet Mars. It's Christopher Phillips and uh, another fun and uh, enlightening Stargazer report. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And we'll catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. On this final day of May and Asian American and Pacific Islander Month, we highlight the head of a local company celebrating its 40th anniversary. Omnitrack made its mark by getting feedback from visitors. While its roots are in tourism, it's looking for ways to help Hawaii diversify our economy. It donated $50,000 to the Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship. Omnitrack founder Pat Louis says this is an investment in Hawaii's future. Omnitrack just celebrated uh, 40th anniversary. And uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to show our appreciation for uh, the markets in, in which we serve and where we've been able to grow. In looking at the community and where we might help, we decided to make a contribution uh, to the uh, Scheidler College of Business and specifically the Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship. Our Omnitrack team strongly believes that while tourism is the engine of our economy, we really need to diversify. And when we look at the statistics on where new job creation comes from, you know, a lot of them are, come from entrepreneurial small businesses. So by supporting uh, the, the uh, what is called the PACE Center, uh, we hope to really help young leaders find additional opportunities to innovate for our economy and, and for the benefit of our children's children. 
And this pandemic certainly has taught us a hard lesson, you know, about being able to move quickly and deal with, you know, the market conditions. Our tourism industry is so tied to our health. The fact that we know we can't just rely on this industry the way we have in the past, uh, and we've got to look for new things. I think that's really true. You know, we've been, as a state, uh, very fortunate to have uh, such a strong industry and a brand, a destination brand, that is probably amongst the best in the world in terms of visitor appeal. Uh, But we can't just stop there. You know, I think that uh, we need to look at what products and services uh, we can also develop for diversification and, and using, in some cases, the Hawaii destination brand as a platform for more entrepreneurial startups. You know, Hawaii has a overall residential population of about 1.4 million, but a visitor population in 2019 was closer to 10 million. So that's a, that's a sizable market and a sizable opportunity for our young entrepreneurs. And your company isn't just a local company. You know, you have a global reach. Share with our listeners, you know, the kind of work, you know, that you're doing here and and across the country. You know, Hawaii is our home. We were founded here. But since then, we have looked for opportunities to export our expertise. And in what we've done that in a couple of areas, uh, In terms of tourism, we offer and and own one of the three largest databases for American travel behavior and attitude. And Hawaii is very recognized as a tourism destination. And in our own strategic planning, uh, we identified an aspiration uh, to become also known as a uh, a knowledge uh, product uh, place for tourism. So we consciously uh, sought and acquired uh, an existing uh, national product, does 110,000-plus interviews a year with with U.S. travelers, and said, you know, let's see if we can can export our learnings about travelers and tourists uh, to other states and other destinations as well. And that's what we've done. And happy to say that... um, uh, our Chris Cam, our president, uh, has you know just secured a couple of projects, one in, in Florida and another one in Guam, uh, in addition to what we do you know, uh, month after month with our uh, multi-client travel attitude and behavior study. And, and, and that's rooted in Hawaii. Well, uh, I was amazed you know, to learn that, yeah, besides just the focus on the feedback that you get from the visitors, that, you know, during the pandemic, you folks also secured a contract to help with the contact tracing. Yes. Well, you know, again, sometimes I think crises cause entrepreneurs to think creatively. So literally what happened was that obviously much of our tourism uh, work was put on hold or was downsized considerably. And as I was reading in the newspaper, I read that there was a need for um, contact tracing and contact testing. And I think that, um, you know, our state legislators and our uh, our mayor at the time identified that we were very short on capacity. Well, you know, we have a calling center. Uh, We think we have a a great quality calling center. So we wrote up a unsolicited proposal of how we might be able to help the state of Hawaii's excellent Department of Health as well as um, the city and county of Honolulu initially uh, to call patients really quickly who have tested positive. And, you know, this was something the the state wanted to do. We really helped to to give them the arms and the legs and the resource to be able to do it quickly. So we've called over 100,000 people in, and we called them in 24 to 36 hours under guidance and, and direction from the State Department of Health to inform them of their positive tests and also to let them know about the uh, isolation and quarantine procedures 
and 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 to let them know uh, that there are resources to help them if they need it. You know, we're a very small business. We're an entrepreneurship, and this is what entrepreneurs do. You know, we look at a market, we hear about a need, and in this case, we were so concerned about trying to help the state on this public health front. I mean, in light of a unknown and really frightening um, pandemic. And so, you know, we, we, we looked at what we have expertise on and said, you know, can we kind of repackage what we do to be of, of assistance to the public in, in Hawaii on, on in this COVID-19, you know, area? And fortunately, um, the state uh, and the city were also looking. So it was a meeting of the minds, as it were. Well, as you reflect back over the past 40 years, anything you want to share with our listeners just about why it's important for you to give back? I mean, you know, as, as part of this anniversary, I know you also made a donation to uh, Kaimuki High School, uh, which you attended. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we have a, um, we're a locally owned company and a uh, locally managed um, company. And two of the three members of our executive teams, including myself, are public high school graduates. Uh, and ha- had a, had the good fortune of having a great education at Kaimaki High School. And so we wanted, again, in light of the pandemic and how tough it is for so many families at this time uh, to, to be able to fund their son's or daughter's education, you know, we said, what can we do uh, to help out not only at the university level, but also at the high schools. So I did start a, a scholarship for a STEM graduating senior in honor of my mother and my father, uh, Fred and Alice uh, Louie. And last year on my mother's 100th birthday, my brother's uh, family company, Pacific Marine and, and Honolulu Shipyard, expanded that to four. And we uh, again, are going to uh, continue to support that and expand it, and we will also make be making we we also are making contributions to Pearl City High School and Campbell High School, where two of our other team members are graduates. Although I and Omnitrack, you know, have have worked in in a lot of different places in the world, and you know, we've done multi-country studies for the Walt Disney Company, and for General Motors in 10 and 11 countries in Asia, our roots remain in Hawaii. And in fact, part of the reason, in my humble opinion, that we've been able to be successful in these other markets is because we understand and have a sensitivity towards the cross-cultural elements that make up a society or a country. And that was learned right here you know, in Hawaii. So we're so grateful and so appreciative for this almost natural expertise that we've developed. And also we've learned how to do business internationally by by doing it uh, with the Aloha spirit. And which goes goes a long way when you're trying to cross cultures. So that whole combination has, has really focused on and reminded us that we need to keep giving back. We keep need to be, you know, uh, we need to continue uh, to build for the future so that our KK Oka'aina uh, can become the brains and the engines of the future. That was Pat Louie, CEO of Omnitrack, which marks its 40th anniversary this year and has awarded thousands of dollars in scholarships to the University of Hawaii's Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship, as well as Kaimuki, Pearl City, and Campbell High Schools. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. 
I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, as the Supreme Court considers overturning Roe v. Wade, we take a look at one possible consequence of the original decision. We said, well, I think maybe legalized abortion might have reduced crime. And we tell the story of how this research finding came about. You know, I have the craziest idea. It's like totally absurd. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring Toto Toilets and Jacuzzi and Bullfrog Hot Tubs and Swim Spas, serving Hawaii for 40 years. More information by calling 834-2722. let May slip away, we give you a second story spotlighting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Have you seen the latest Spider-Man movie, No Way Home? Well, if you haven't, then you may not know that a short clip in the film made many Filipinos burst with pride. Hawaii resident Mary Rivera played a bit part as Lola, the grandmother of Spider-Man's best friend. And earlier this month at the Filipino Community Center's 30th anniversary celebration of the fiesta, Rivera's fans lined up to get a picture with her. Take a listen to this scene from the movie. Nagkalat ka na naman. Linisin mo lahat ng mga basura mo dito. At ikaw, alam mo na, gusto ko itong bahay natin maayos. Pero tingnan mo, dumi dito, dumi doon. My Lola's asking if you could clean up the webs you just shot. Oh, sorry, Lola. Yes, of course. I'm going to bed. Good night, Lola. Good night, Ned's Lola. Tagalog got the screen time thanks to Mary Rivera and her daughter. We talked to Angie Kelly about how mom made it on the big screen. Gosh, I understand that you have kind of a famous mother. <laughs> uh, sort of, kind of, but to me, she's just my mom. But yes, Mary Rivera, she plays uh, Ned's Lola in the latest Spider-Man No Way Home. And so how did she... Uh get on the big screen well it's a funny story I by chance actually I happen to be on a friend's Facebook scrolling and I see an ad casting call looking for uh, a local Hawaii Filipina grandmother between the age of 50 and 90 and immediately I thought oh well my mom qualifies and checks off all those boxes so I basically told my mom about it and uh, at first she was reluctant because it was uh, my niece's wedding and my mom was very involved in that, and that was her priority. So she was really ready to give up on that. She didn't want to, but my niece um, urged her because her boyfriend is a videographer on the side. So he said, Nanai, we can help you, you know, film the audition tape. It's really simple. It won't take long, more than a day. So that's, that's how she did it, yeah. And she got it. And she got the part. Yep, she did her initial audition tape which really was, um, if you've seen it, and if you know my mom, she's just being herself. And yeah, really essentially she said in her audition tape that she'll celebrate with whoever gets the role because it was an amazing opportunity for our culture to be highlighted, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look for role models and people that look like you and, you know, someone you can identify mm -hmm. to have uh, someone up there, you know, it is uh, Asian, Asian American Pacific Islander month. I mean, you know, you want you want to see the faces that look like you. Absolutely. And the highest compliment that my mom has gotten um, was everyone saying that they could see their Lola, which is grandmother. They could see their Lola in her character, which is the highest compliment, really. And so what did she do for audition? When did she do her? Oh, what did she do? Oh, she basically they just asked her to submit um, to talk about herself and why she wanted to do the role. So she just gave a brief history of, of her time in the Philippines and what brought her to the United States and raising her four children and 11 grandchildren. And basically that that is her biggest accomplishment of everything that she's done. And my mom has worn many hats over the years. She was a radio broadcaster, a teacher, you know, but most notable was her role as mother and grandmother. Right. And just come off Mother's Day, so I guess it's appropriate, right? You salute your mom. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's been an amazing adventure. It, to us, she's just my mom, 
but uh, to the rest of the world, she's Ned's Lola, which is, which is for her, she sees it, it's humbling really, because never before in cinematic history really has there been uh, a place for the Filipino language and culture, because they did a really good job with paying attention to uh, the details of our culture. If you look at the scene in the movie, they have the Santo Nino, they have the giant wooden fork and spoon, things that Filipinos identify, you know, with our culture. So I think that was amazing that she could be part of that. So it rings true. It rings true, absolutely. And so your mother uh, was a bit of a celebrity here this morning at the Fiesta? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. This morning there was a long line of, of folks wanting to take pictures. And my mom is just that way. She, she'll do it all day if she had the energy. And that was Angie Kelly talking about how her mother, Mary Rivera, won a small speaking part in the movie Spider-Man No Way Home, which opened in theaters in December. She says mom is still getting used to her new celebrity status. And that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from Hawaiian Airlines as we continue our look all this week at our progress toward the state's green goals. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.